Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10. One of the most recognizable names of the last half of the 20th century within the charismatic movement was a man named C. Peter Wagner. He uh, did many things to promote charismatic doctrine in the last 50 years of that century and even in the beginning of this new millennium. He left maybe his, uh, one of his most uh, grand ventures for the last. He uh, launched what became known as the New Apostolic Reformation. This was an organization uh, of, uh, of different people who claimed in some way some level of authority and dominion over not just the local church but over many churches and pastors and even regions and nations. He formed an organization in 2000 to organize all of these so-called apostles and named himself the presiding apostle. Wagner marked 2001 then as the beginning of the second apostolic age. He says, we're now seeing before our eyes the most radical change in the way of doing church since the Protestant Reformation. In fact, I think I could make a reasonable argument that it may turn out to be a more radical change, which is an understatement if you don't know that. Wagner was proposing nothing less than the reestablishment of apostolic ministry after 2,000 years almost of silence. And uh, thankfully, he was offering it to many others to participate for a nominal fee of $69 a year. Uh, at the end of 2012, those rates had gone up to 450 a year if you wanted to be an apostle, at least in North America. 650 by the way, if you're a married couple, in case you wanted a twofer half off it, I guess, something like that. He's by no means the only one who had tried to profiteer from apostleship. He might be the most brash and the most blatant in the modern era, but there had been a few groups along the way, along the fringes of Christianity, who through the years maybe had claimed an apostle here or there. One of the more well-known in the 1940s and 50s was the Latter Rain Movement, which promoted a restoration of what they called a fivefold ministry, which, among other things, included apostleship. But for the most part, throughout the history of the church, no one had the audacity to claim the title of apostle, apart from maybe the pope. But it just isn't something that was a part of the church. It was fairly clearly understood that apostleship was something that had passed away, something that had been reserved in a particular time for a particular group of people with a particular task. My, how things have changed, though. You could drive down the interstate of Atlanta or most big cities today and probably pass multiple billboards with proclamations of people you've probably never heard of taking for themselves the title of apostle. More and more people are wanting to claim this kind of super authority, this kind of dominion, this kind of extensive exercise of authority that goes beyond, as I said, just a local congregation into some sort of massive, massive movements. 
They're rising up, self-proclaimed in many ways, or maybe uh, very thinly credentialed because of some uh, construct, some organization that might come along and stamp their approval. But it's a totally new phenomenon in terms of church history. It's not something that has been a part of the church, nor should it be a part of the church. It is, sadly, as you follow these movements, it has been plagued by all kinds of abuse, all kinds of oppression, all kinds of manipulation, and all kinds of profiteering. It's not surprising because those who would take upon themselves the title of Apostle today are really exercising a level of narcissism that has few parallels in the history of the church. The Orthodox Church has always recognized the unique position, the unique authority of the original apostles. They were foundational. They were limited. They were verified with signs and wonders. And once they occupied and accomplished what the Lord wanted them to accomplish, they passed off the scene. Now this morning we come to a passage of Scripture that helps us to understand that a little bit. It's a passage where we find Christ appointing and authorizing his apostles. It records all of this for us in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 4 and gives us occasion and opportunity to discuss who these men are, why Christ appointed them, and the kind of authority that he gave to them. Now as we get started, let me just begin by reading these couple verses for us. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 10, we read this. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here Jesus is appointing these 12 men. And this particular occasion, he's about to send them out. In fact, in the beginning of verse 5, we read, These 12 Jesus sent out. And the occasion is really the end of chapter 9. You remember where Jesus was telling us the fields are white unto harvest and pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest. And presumably Jesus participating in this prayer has asked for this. And now here we see not only the command to pray, but we see the answer, the initial answer to the prayer. These men are going to be sent out. But before the actual sending, Matthew devotes these few verses to telling us exactly who they are, naming each one of them, all 12. And even before that, taking time to talk about the unique authority that had been given to them. They would be the first ones who were sent out, if you will, in response to the prayers of Jesus and God's people. But their real uniqueness isn't simply in the chronological order of them being sent out, they are set apart in a very unique way, not only for the ministry we find in Matthew chapter 10, but really 
after the resurrection, into the early days of the church and after the ascension, these are God's unique servants. And that's to be understood. That's why Matthew gives this detail. He helps us to understand and highlight the uniqueness of these men. I think by taking note of two definitive steps that Jesus takes in sending them out. The first one you see here in verse 1 where Jesus delegates authority to these men. He delegates authority to them. He called the 12 and he gave them authority, which is something that's different than all of the other disciples. This is something that was uniquely intended for them. And this authority, Matthew says, specifically was related to power over three things. Over unclean spirits, that is demons. Over every disease and over every affliction to heal them. Now, if you've been with us in the study of Matthew, you probably recognize that triad of, of uh, activity because it is exactly what Christ has been doing. All the way back before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 4.23, we read that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame was spreading throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them all. And then even right back in verse 35 of chapter 9, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Even back in verse 32 and 33, we see him casting out yet another demon. So these are the works, the very same works that Jesus had been performing among the people that had caused his fame to be spreading throughout all the land. And now here he is delegating the same authority over the same kind of ailments to these 12 disciples. And he does it in order to set them apart, in order to make it obvious that whatever was going on with him is also going on with them. To make it obvious that these men are with Christ. That whatever people were seeing in Christ in terms of power and authority, that same kind of power and authority is in these apostles. That's the point. Now this will become extremely important moving forward not just while Christ is with them, but more importantly, when he departs. When, he, when he's raised from the dead and eventually ascends back into heaven, he leaves these men behind to establish the church in his name. And in God's providence, these apostles will be the ones who are responsible for getting the church started, for establishing the church on the earth. And they'll be responsible for establishing its doctrines and its practices and its even what they call its traditions. They'll write the books, the sacred documents of the New Testament church. And they will need to be recognized as having the authority to do all of those things. Therefore, they needed to be validated, they needed some credentials. They didn't have any on their own. They needed some sort of authentication that they had the authority to do all of these things. We understand that. I mean, we have 
um, accrediting boards and, and documents and things for people, particularly who carry weighty responsibility. We have, you know, certifications and authorization for doctors, for lawyers, for engineers. Why? Because these people, they take important tasks upon their shoulders, whether it is operating on someone in an operating table or if it's an engineer, he's building something that could fall down on people or whether it is a, an attorney, he might be dealing with very weighty matters of the law and someone's, someone's freedom or someone's jail time. All of those are significant and weighty things and so we want them to be authorized. We want them to be somehow uh, sort of uh, designated and credentialed. No one just stands up and says, you know, I, I feel like being a doctor. Hand me a scalpel and give me a patient. No one hopefully decides, you know, I just feel like building something. I think I'm going to take some sticks and bricks and throw something up and sell it to someone. And we would be a fool if we just allowed people to do that without actually validating and verifying that they know what they're doing and they have the authority to do it. You'd, you'd be risking your life. You'd be risking your health and your safety. How much more those who are handling eternal things like the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. They needed authorization, which is exactly what these miracles have been doing for Christ. We've talked about this already as Christ was carrying out his ministry and performing signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, Peter says of Jesus in Acts 2.22, he was a man accredited to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. That was the purpose of Christ's miracles. This would be the purpose of the apostles' miracles. And so when he gave them this authority over disease and over demons, it establishes the authority that they would need for the future. And then once he's gone, once that happens, God continues to authorize them. We read that as you read through the book, especially the early chapters of the book of Acts, as the church is getting started, we find things like Acts 2.43, all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts 4.32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one that had anything that belonged to him was uh, claimed it as his own, yet they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 5.12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now all this happened, and in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews draws this conclusion. He says, how will we escape then if we neglect so great a salvation, which was at first declared to us by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard him, that would be the apostles, while God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So this salvation, which was proclaimed and credited by the Lord was also accredited by these men. And all of this 
is what Paul describes to the Corinthian church as the signs of a true apostle, which he said God had performed even through him among them with signs and wonders and mighty works, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So it wasn't just for this moment in Matthew 10. This became a part of their ongoing credentials. They were set apart through these kinds of signs and God validated and verified and authenticated them through all of this in order to confirm their message. Jesus then sends them out with these confirming signs so that people know that they speak for God. That's the point. And we have to understand that was not a given in the early days. It wasn't a given that they were the ones who were speaking for God. There would be others who came along and made that claim. And yet it was the apostles who were set apart by these credentialing and authenticating signs. It's, uh, you hear this coming out in the writings, again, of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. Again, he tells them in 2 Thessalonians 2, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word or by mouth or by letter from us. In chapter 3, verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. And verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that person and do not associate with him. So the apostles and their doctrine and their teaching and their tradition then became the defining standard by which you judged other people. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul even says this in verse 37, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are the commandments of the Lord. And if anyone doesn't recognize this, he's not to be recognized. So this this authority that was given to the apostles so that they could speak the word of God was all sort of designed in order to validate the fact that when they spoke, they were speaking the word of God. And that therefore their words became the accrediting factor after that. So that if anyone spoke, they had to speak in alignment with the apostles. Paul even tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. Anyone to make a claim who comes after this to some other doctrine other than the apostolic doctrine that had been handed down to Timothy and to others, Paul says there's only one conclusion to make. He's conceited and he understands nothing. Even in the books of 2nd and 3rd John, John writes those books to help the church understand basically how to discern who they should support and who they shouldn't support in terms of itinerant preachers or what we might call missionaries. And he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. 
And for this reason, when I come, I'll call attention to his deeds. He goes on to say in verse 12 of 3 John, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony and you know our testimony is true. So in other words, this Diotrephes, how do you know he's someone not to be trusted? He doesn't accept the words of the apostles. This Demetrius, how do you know that he's someone who's to be validated because he accepts our testimony, the testimony of the apostles? What they say becomes the confirmation of those moving forward who are faithful because the apostles were accredited. They had the authority delegated to them by God. Now, understanding that in verse 1, understanding how Jesus delegates that authority is important, but it's also, or it's equally important, I should say, to understand it in tandem with verses 2 through 4. Because you see, he not only delegates authority, but he designates specifically who this authority went to. And Matthew names all of these 12 apostles. He gives us this list. It's not actually this moment when he named them. That probably came three months earlier when Jesus was giving in the Sermon on the Mount. Both Mark and Luke indicate that that was the point when he had gone up on the mountain and prayed overnight. And after praying all night, he called all of his disciples to himself. And then among his disciples, Luke says, he chose out of them 12 that he named apostle or he appointed apostle. And then Matthew wants to name all of them because he wants us to know very specifically who they are. He wants a record, a written record of each of their names so that no one can be in doubt. It's not enough just to call them the apostles. It's not enough just to call them the twelve. He wants you to know specifically who they are because this authority is limited. These credentials, this this. This authentication is limited. Even the word itself, the word apostle, which basically means one who is sent, we might translate it delegate or envoy. It was used in ancient Greek to refer to a ship or ships that were sent on a special mission. Maybe to take someone or retrieve something. But by New Testament times, it wasn't referring to ships anymore. It started to refer to specific people, apostles. But the word itself referred to not a standing position. An apostle, in other words, is not a position like a governor or a judge or an ambassador that is permanent and continuing that even after the person in the position dies, he's replaced by someone else. That's not what an apostle is. An apostle is a delegate. He's assigned for a specific duty, and once that duty has been fulfilled, the position ceases to exist. And, and the temporary nature of their role is bound up in the word apostle. These men were appointed by Christ for a specific task, and then their position Once the task is complete, their positions cease to exist. They laid the foundation of the church, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. They, along with Christ, laid the foundation of the church. 
And then while Christ is no longer present with us, so too the apostles are no longer present with us. It's a little bit like our, in our own nation's history, the Constitutional Convention. It was necessary. It was important. They convened it. Every state appointed delegates. They sent those delegates to the Constitutional Convention. They had a task. They accomplished the task. But once the task was complete and the convention was disbanded, we don't bother to appoint Constitutional Convention delegates anymore. It would be pointless because the task is already passed. In the same way, it would be pointless to go on appointing apostles when the task of apostleship is already gone. These men had been given a specific purpose, a specific task. It was bound up in the title of apostleship. They were a delegate for a specific time. And Christ limited it to these 12 men. And it makes sense because if he didn't, and if the purpose of credentialing them and the purpose of authenticating them was to validate who was speaking for God, then every time a new generation came along and a new apostle came along, there'd be so much confusion about, wait, 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 uh, now you're speaking for God? These other men spoke for God? When those things seemed to be in conflict, there would be so much question, so much doubt, so much confusion within the church. These men were a limited group of people for a limited period of time for a specific purpose. That is why, by the way, one of the key credentials for being one of the twelve was that you had been appointed by Christ Himself. You could have men, you could have possibly even women who are given a task, delegated to go do something, carry a letter, carry a scroll of communication across nations and overseas. You could have people who uh, in that sort of general sense are called someone who is sent. But what's unique about these men was that they were delegates of Christ. They were apostles of Christ. And they were given authority because of that. And their authority was authenticated by their signs. And so it was necessary, if you're going to be one of these men, it was necessary that you were appointed by Christ Himself. That is to say, the physical, resurrected, in the flesh, Christ. When Paul comes along and he's making a case for his own unique apostleship in 1 Corinthians 9.1, one of the things he says to the Corinthian church is, have I not seen Jesus our Lord. That was a fundamental requirement for apostleship. No one could make a claim to being an apostle unless he had seen the resurrected Christ. And Paul draws attention to his, his own genuineness and his own uniqueness in the fact that he had done that. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how the resurrected Christ appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, 
As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, he says. So he understands, Paul understands that in order to be one of the apostles of Christ, to be a special delegate of Christ, you had to have personally encountered the resurrected Christ and personally been appointed by Him, which happened to the twelve, and Paul says happened to him as well on the road to Damascus. Christ, who had already ascended into heaven, came down out of heaven and met, Christ, met Paul personally and personally appointed him which Paul says was the last one. Paul says, I was the last one. Last of all, he appointed me. So here is Paul along with these 12, all taking on this unique temporary function in the early church, given particular authority for the formative years of the church to not only establish its doctrine, but to write its New Testament books, its governing sacred scriptures, and to provide authority during those early years when the church didn't have a New Testament and yet needed guidance along the way. And Matthew is telling us that these men are the men that Christ chose. Now, without getting into too much detail, we can simply add maybe a comment here that what is really remarkable about the 12 men he names here is how unremarkable they really are. I mean, we, we hardly know anything about most of them. And we know a good bit, obviously, about Peter, a little bit about Andrew and John, um, almost nothing about his brother James or many of the other apostles who are named here. They were ordinary men, in other words. A few had moderate success at business. Matthew, obviously, had been a wealthy and successful tax collector, but that all came by unethical and heavy-handed methods, which he repented of. James and John were part of their father's fishing enterprise, which was large enough to have multiple boats and multiple hired servants. Peter and Andrew appear to be something like subcontractors under them. So they had some experience, uh, maybe some modest success at running their small fishing business. But apparently the rest of the apostles came from very common, very undistinguished, very anonymous backgrounds. In fact, Whenever they were called before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and being assessed by the rabbis and religious leaders in Jerusalem, their final assessment, we're told by Luke, is the fact that, quote, they understood that these were uneducated and untrained men, end quote. That was their assessment. These guys are really unimpressive. They're uneducated, they're untrained. They had no clout. They showed, we might say, on a worldly level, very little promise. They had very little experience organizing any kind of, of a movement, uh, any kind of a grand organization. They apparently had done no public speaking while they were with Jesus 
They demonstrated over and over again a kind of dullness to understand what he was saying. They apparently argued among themselves about who was going to be the greatest and struggled with pride. And in the the hour of Jesus' greatest trial, when he was being arrested and bound, they deserted him and fled. They're not particularly courageous. And yet, their task that was given to them is a task that is unequaled in the history of the world. The book of Acts says that it was under the leadership of these men that the world was turned upside down. The whole face of civilization was remade by the church of Jesus Christ. And these men were chosen to be the primary agents to set that in motion. They were used in this way not because they were extraordinarily talented or gifted naturally, but because in spite of their limitations and in spite of their failures, they would slowly learn to put all their trust in Christ. In fact, their greatest credential might have been the fact that they had very little to offer to God. Even in the case of the Apostle Paul over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul himself was a highly credentialed man, a highly educated man, an accomplished man. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he tells us in, in, uh, in the book of Philippians. He had training under some of the best teachers, rabbis, and leaders of the day. He had organized a movement to hunt down and kill Christians. He had shown all kinds of zeal, all kinds of boldness. His problem wasn't a lack of credentialing. His problem might have been too much self-reliance. And so he tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that God had sent him through a whole series of things to humble him. He He was beaten with 40 lashes less one, three times, he says, He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he spent a night and day drifting in the Mediterranean Sea, he was frequently in danger from robbers, from people, from Gentiles, from the wilderness, from wild beasts, from false brothers. He labored in hardship with sleepless nights, with hunger and thirst, no food, cold exposure, This was a man who by worldly means could have accomplished much, but God took him through a process that stripped him down to the point of having nothing. He didn't even have his daily food. He barely had clothing on his back. And then on top of all of that, Paul says, God sent him a thorn in his side. To afflict him. As he says in verse 7, to keep him from being conceited. To keep him from being conceited. He asked the Lord for relief from this thorn. And the only answer that he got in verse 9 was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly 
in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul had to go through a process to get there. These guys pretty much started there. That was their credential, primarily, that they were weak. That they really had almost nothing to commend them. And yet, that put them in such a position so as to trust in the Lord. To trust in the Lord. Now, the fact that they had no training and they had no education doesn't mean the fact that, that doesn't mean that God sort of exalted in ignorance. He called them to Himself and He took them under His wing and He walked with them and spent almost every waking moment with them for the better part of two and a half years. And most of that time, all they were doing was watching and listening and observing and learning. And even here, for a brief period of time, He gives them a duty, He sends them out, but even that was for the purpose of them seeing the power of God in light of their weaknesses. But this is the way God prepares His leaders. This is what He's looking for. These men were remarkable for how unremarkable they were. And at this point, we just take note of their unique status and the criteria that Jesus used. It wasn't worldly admiration and it wasn't worldly standard. It was something in his own heart and counsel. It's not an ideal group. Rarely is. When you have spiritual leaders, they rarely are ideal. Sometimes their greatest credential is their weakness. Even among them, we read this sort of ominous verse at the end of verse 4, that one of the ones who was chosen was Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's really such a fascinating thing to think about Jesus going up to the mountain to pray all night long, asking for God's wisdom for exactly who these 12 should be. And there was no naivete in his mind. He wasn't blinded by foolishness nor by sin. He was perfectly aligned with the will of God. He walked in godly wisdom all the time. He prayed and asked for God's leading. And we know that his prayers were pleasing to God. And yet through all of that, when he chooses the twelve, he chooses one who would betray him. We don't always understand God's purposes. But we know one of the purposes in these spiritual leaders was to have one who would wind up being false. Jesus knew it, by the way. John 6, verse 70, Jesus answered, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So he knew from the beginning that Judas was a devil. 
But it just highlights for us that God works in His own profound ways to accomplish His own profound purposes. And we can only imagine that one of the purposes for this was to teach these disciples a lesson and to teach the church a lesson. First of all, to teach them that even being among these 12 leaders did not secure them from the potential dangers of sin. And beyond that, to teach a church that even your spiritual leaders are not the foundation of your trust. There is no loyalty even to these 12 disciples, 12 apostles. There is no loyalty to any pastor or leader or teacher. Our loyalty goes to Christ because even these men can deceive you. They can fail. Tremendous and profound lessons for us as we think about the Lord's use of us. We see how He chose these men. We know that they're unique. We know that they have given us the Word of God. But as we reflect even our own life, how the Lord might use us, we recognize that if He used these men, how much more can He use us if we surrender ourselves to Him? If we confess our weaknesses and we put our trust in the Lord? Well, there's much, much more to learn from them as they go out, beginning in verse 5 and through the rest of this mission. So many lessons the Lord had to teach them that you and I can learn from as well. And we'll get into those next week. If you're here this morning visiting for the first time, uh, we encourage you, stop by our visitor reception down the hallway to the right. Give us a chance to greet you. If you're here this morning... And you come because the Word of God given to us in the New Testament, given to us by these apostles, has been impressed in your heart. And you're realizing that it is not the opinions of men, but it is what it truly claims to be, the Word of God. And God is calling you to Himself. If that's you this morning, don't leave here today without stopping by. Give us a chance to hear how the Lord's working in your heart and a chance to pray with you and confirm through promises in His Word that salvation comes to all those who call on the name of the Lord. Father, we're grateful for this and thankful for the reminders of the veracity and the, and the validation of Your truth by these men. Woe to those who would seek to establish themselves in that role apart from You. But let us, like the early church, devote ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer and to teaching. We'll do that, Lord, because that's the way you have ordained it. And it is you, ultimately, who is the head of the church, the one to whom we yield. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.